Hey, Sylvia. What's up, Tim? In the movie we watched for the podcast today, by Dawn's Early Light, there are competing nuclear launch orders from different people claiming to be the President of the United States. If they updated the movie for modern times, this would probably be like if the President on Twitter ordered a nuclear attack on Canada, but then on Instagram ordered us to nuke the moon. Which order do you think would take precedence? The one with the most likes? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear counterproliferation for a living. I'm fortunate to be joined today in the podcast studio slash my basement over Zoom with my special guest, Sylvia Mishra. She is a doctoral researcher at King's College London, where she studies nuclear strategy and nonproliferation, South Asia security, and emerging technologies. She's also written an excellent article called Directing Doomsday about lessons we can learn about nuclear weapons through movies. And you can probably figure out by now why I would want her on as a guest on our podcast. Sylvia, welcome. Thank you, Tim. I'm so excited to be here. So what is the biggest lesson we can draw from some of the movies that you uh, talked about here? I know you, you mentioned Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, the one we're going to talk about today. What are some of the big stuff that uh, you look for when you watch a movie so that we can uh, become more educated about these nuclear weapon topics? First of all, I think movies are a great way in terms of teaching and raising public awareness about nuclear weapons issues, nuclear policy, and nuclear policy decision-making. Movies have played a critical role in terms of generating awareness and reaching uh, the public at a scale. So when it comes to movies like Failsafe or War Games or even the movie by Dawn's Early Light, we see some of the crucial and important aspects of nuclear concepts playing out. Especially in by Dawn's Early Light, we see how nuclear accidents and miscalculations and misperceptions are play out. And I believe that everyone should watch some of these nuclear movies because they are a great way of understanding and better understanding how nuclear policy making actually works in action. It's also probably a really fun uh, excuse to delay yourself on your PhD research because then you got to watch a movie, you got to need a break, but it's still all research, right? It's still all, you know, it's not like you're watching Curbing Enthusiasm or The Office or something. It's all, it's all work. Absolutely. And also, especially during this pandemic, I think, uh, and the lockdown, I think since we have some extra bit of time at our hand, it is a great way to educate ourselves about some of these uh, pressing uh, challenges. Even the threat of nuclear weapons are not as widespread as now. Nuclear weapons are not really front and center of public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And hence, these movies really act a great way in terms of raising awareness and sending a message about the nuclear risk. So before we get into the, the movie discussion here, I always like to ask people that are, that are the nuclear policy experts that I get the pleasure to talk to on this show, how did you get into this field and in, in work and any sort of uh, origin story stuff you like for people to know before we, we, we delve into the, the movie discussion? Well, I worked on uh, India-U.S. defense and security cooperation and U.S. policy in Indo-Pacific. An important aspect of India-U.S. relations was a, a one to three civilian nuclear agreement mm -hmm. uh, signed between other two countries. And that really got me 
interested in understanding the broader nuclear uh, non-proliferation regime and the global nuclear order. And over time, I've really gotten interested in understanding how the nuclear policy field is changing, the landscape is changing, and we have greater uh, threats in terms of emerging technologies and the integration of emerging technologies with strategic weapons and how that really pushes some of the rungs of escalation. And it's definitely so different than it was during the Cold War, which is interesting because a lot of the movies that we cover on this podcast are movies from the Cold War, because as you mentioned, that's when nuclear weapons were at the front and center of everybody's mind. And if the people in the theater care about a particular topic, that's what you know, Hollywood's going to make movies about. I still think there are some good lessons to be learned, not only historical perspective, but also for today. And that's why I'm really excited that you were able to come on to talk about this movie, like Dawn's Early Light, because it is a very unique case of a, a movie about nuclear weapons. It's a very unique portrayal of nuclear warfighting and strategy. It's not a movie where the goal is to stop a nuclear attack, because it happens. It's not a movie that tries to figure out what to do, you know, at the end of the war. It's not a post-apocalypse movie. We're kind of right in the middle of war fighting. And there's not a lot of movies that are like that. And it's also really interesting because it came out on HBO. It was back in the day when HBO used to make big movies, uh, HBO Pictures. And it came out in April 1990. So it's a movie about nuclear war that showed on TV between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, it was released right before the Cold War ended. It gets compared a lot to Dr. Strangelove and, and Failsafe, but it's actually, you know, about a, a, when a nuclear war has already really started. Uh, it's about leadership in the United States and Russia struggling to find a way to de-escalate the shooting war before a quote-unquote total commitment on both sides that leads to the end of the world. And it's also not an easy movie to watch in terms of being able to find it. Uh, it's not on HBO, which is I think is very ironic, given that it's an HBO film. It's I don't think it's on HBO Max or any of those services, but you and I were able to find it either on DVD or on YouTube. Don't tell anybody. Like, don't tell HBO, but the whole movie's on YouTube. You can watch it fairly easily. The movie was directed by Jack Shoulder, mostly known for horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Wishmaster 2, uh, but he also did this really weird X-Men TV show that I remember watching as a kid, but then before the internet, I never could find it again, so I wondered if this was an like a dream that I had, but it's, it's real. It's called Generation X. It's not a very good pilot, but I find it really interesting that these weird things still come up in my uh, adult life, but connected to nuclear things. And it's based on a 1983 book, Trinity's Child, by William Rocknow. I have not read the book, but I, I try to skim it on, on Google Books. Did you happen to see the book at all? I actually saw it on Amazon, uh, and I think that would be a good Christmas gift for you, oh. Tim. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll see that. I, I have a, I've got a big stack of books that I'm supposed to be reading for work, um, but this is certainly one I would put at the top of the pile. It's very interesting. And the cast for the movie, even though it's just an HBO TV movie, it's really good. Powers Booth plays a character named Major Cassidy. He's in the U.S. Air Force. He's a B-52 pilot. Rebecca de Mornay plays his co-captain, his co-pilot, Captain Monroe. And then we get James Earl Jones again. We all know him from Dr. Strangelove, which I think was his first movie role uh, where he plays okay. one of the crew members, I think one of the bombardiers. Uh, he's also, you know, Darth Vader in Star Wars, which I always talk about as a nuke movie because of the Death Star being a weapon of mass destruction. Okay. But he's in this movie. He plays a character named Alice. At least that's his call sign. He's a general in command of the EC-135 Looking Glass, which is like a mobile flying command center where you can coordinate a nuclear war if you have to. Um, Martin Landau plays the President of the United States. Darren McGavin plays the Secretary of the Interior. 
why is this person in the movie? We'll get to that. And then Rip Torn plays the guy named Colonel Fargo. I really like Rip Torn in, in movies, and he here is, is pretty great as this very super hawkish army advisor uh, who just wants to start war with with uh, with Russia. Uh, Rip Torn, uh, Colonel Fargo, actually um, calls himself a Soviet weapons capability uh, expert. So yeah. that was uh, cool. Yeah, he's a he's a great character. I really enjoy him uh, quite a bit. This movie, you know, there's not a lot of reviews about it uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, but the the fans who were able to submit reviews, a couple thousand of them, uh, results in a 75% fresh rating, which is pretty good for an, a TV movie from 1990. And James Earl Jones was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Miniseries or a Special. Pretty well deserved, even though he's only on the, the screen for like, what, like five minutes, maybe total? Tim, I really agree with you when you say that the movie did not receive a lot of reviews even in academic circle or like the policy community it did not receive a lot of critical appraisal as well and probably that the reason why is because of the timing of the movie yeah you were mentioning about how this movie is set in a bipolar context right but when the movie was actually released like it was just like before uh, the end of the cold war and suddenly, like some of the previous apprehensions and the threat of uh, nuclear weapons were not that widespread. And hence, probably this uh, movie did not receive a lot of attention as it should have. But one of the reasons why I think it is extremely important in the present day context, and even though we are living in a multipolar world and nuclear threats is more multiplex, we have different deterrent relationship with different peer competitors, right? But this is important because there are several lessons that need, that can be drawn from the movie. And the movie showcases how the escalation and the action reaction and counter reaction cycle plays out. So I think that the movie and the characters in, in a very riveting way does a lot of justice to actually showcasing how nuclear war or what often we like to call these days as a potential limited nuclear war can play out. That's great. I had two questions that I wanted to talk that kind of generally think about when we go through the plot. That's one of them. That's great. Uh, how well does this movie portray an accurate scenario for limited nuclear war? Uh, and secondly, kind of what does this movie have to say about nuclear war, rogue generals, accidents, potential false alarms that's not covered already in some of the other movies like Doctor Strangelove, War Games, Failsafe, some of those. Um, there are some unique things about this. So let's uh, dive right in here. Um, as usual, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen this movie uh, in from 1990, if you happen to not uh, illegally watch it on, on YouTube or something, uh, feel free to do so right now. We're just not being held to any sort of legal uh, consequences of that. But uh, go out and, and find a, a copy of it and check it out. Um, but we'll get into it right here because we can't uh, get super critical about it without being a little spoilery. We are under attack. We certainly wouldn't fire a missile at the Soviet Union. Now, who the hell did? Four people. Three minutes. If we don't hit them hard and hit them now, we may never get the second chance. In this one, sir, there are no military geniuses. Two choices. The fate of this planet may be riding with you. One chance for survival. An all-star cast in the HBO original movie by Dawn's Early Light. So we open the movie 
with some partygoers uh, driving into a hotel after a night of revelry. In the morning, after whatever it was that they did, uh, we meet Major Cassidy, a U.S. Air Force captain of a B-52 bomber, codenamed Polar Bear One. Uh, this is, character is played by Powers Booth, who I love um, from lots of things, but he's in my favorite television show of all time, which is Deadwood, also on HBO. So he's a, an HBO old hand here. And it also turns out the person he was partying with is his second-in-command on that B-52, Captain Monroe, played by the Rebecca de Mornay. Uh, she's not too happy with Major Cassidy because he wants to keep their relationship a secret, and he's all business. We get introduced at various points to some of the, the crew members of the B-52. They're all very friendly at the, the base. Uh, I think the base is near Spokane, Washington. We get to meet some of the family members of the crew and, and everything. But it just seems like they take their job very seriously, but they're also... They equally party just as hard. And then we cut to a very... This movie has a lot of fast cuts. Like, there's this one random scene of the, the people meeting their family at the B-52 base. And then really quickly, we get to a really dark room with a big board and some radar screens. We go back and forth quite a bit. Uh, so we'll do our best to explain it, because it is a little bit confusing when you're watching it. In Turkey, we see air traffic control officers monitoring an, an, an aircraft that doesn't seem to have any identification. It's not answering any of their calls. Probably nothing, right? We cut to Strategic Air Command headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, and they're tracking all of a sudden a missile launch that seems to come from inside Turkey, heading somewhere towards the Soviet Union. So it stops over the Soviet city of Donsky, and when they're trying to figure out who launched the missile, things definitely escalate very quickly, and we discover pretty quickly, probably a little bit too quickly, that the missile detonates and that it was a nuclear detonation. This freaks everybody out because Turkey was described in the movie as a NATO member and the Soviet Union probably thought, oh, we're under attack by NATO, which means we're under attack by the United States and we need to do something about it. This is one minor thing that I saw in here. I don't know if anybody really noticed it in this movie, but if you look at the big board, it says a little thing that flashes up. It says the name of the city where the thing was detonated over. And then it says 500,000 MT, which normally I interpret to be megatons, right? <laughs> what do you think, Sylvia? Is, is 500,000 megatons a pretty big bomb? Tim, I think you are a classic nuclear nerd uh, to observe that. Uh, but uh, yes, that is a huge and a very large bomb. Yes, it, I, I would just say it's extremely scary. But at the end of the movie, uh, th there are like few sentences trying mm -hmm. to uh, underscore what really happened. And it seems like some of the dissidents got uh, the handle of few like nuclear warheads. And it seems that they detonated uh, it, which is really a scary prospect. But then this is also something that the movie really gets into in terms of rogue uh, yeah. military officials. And a lot of times when we also see this side of where some officers are not pleased about having a better relation between uh, the East and the West. And I think the president of the United States also, in when he's speaking to the Soviet president, he mentioned that I, I thought our relations yeah. were... Uh, great and it was uh, getting uh, better so I, I thought that was interesting but really by uh, Dawn's early light uh, showcases how the Cold War uh, quickly turned into a hot war. The movie is definitely one of the most uh, seemingly realistic takes on accidental launch and makes a climatic start. The scare of an accidental uh, launch is um, pretty well I would say explained in the movie and uh, it expands to also include uh, and showcase to the audience some of the challenges of misperceptions mm -hmm. and what are the potential fallouts in the event of a nuclear use by a rogue non-state actor. 
one of the things that uh, and i'm sure like we will discuss in more details is about the moral and ethical dilemmas and the challenges of command and control which was explicitly explained uh, your, uh, in the movie which i thought was pretty interesting yeah it covers these topics i think pretty well which is why i'm not too you know as much as i uh, put a magnifying glass uh, and did a screen share on the big board i don't mind it too much you know because if you really got into it you'd be like wait five hundred thousand megatons uh you, if you've listened to the podcast you'd know that the largest ever nuclear weapons test not a bomb, but literally a test, was 50 megatons. Yes. Yeah, the Tsar Bomba test, which was an undeliverable bomb. It was it was like a huge factory warehouse size bomb that they had to uh, keep on to the ground. Not something but you could probably Tim, really... Do you think that the makers of the movie made us slip up on this, on the number? I guess so. It could also be that it's not referring to megaton. It just says 500,000 MT. You know, it's... I would think that that's what it was. But in, anyway, it's not really all that important because 500,000 megatons would be more than every single nuclear bomb combined at the height of the Cold War. So right. probably not that, but it's just uh, underscoring how important this is. But I think otherwise they get stuff pretty good, except for the very next thing, which is very odd. Strategic Air Command, all the people there, they, they start getting really excited, obviously because there's nuclear detonation. Strategic Air Command is, is based in Omaha, Nebraska. It is where uh, you would coordinate these kinds of attacks. You know, once the president were to order, say, a nuclear launch, uh, normally Strategic Air Command would be the place where those orders would be received and distributed. They could go elsewhere, but it's usually the first place uh, that they would go to. So there's a commander there who scrambles into action, and he says, we need to change our defense posture to cocked pistol. And change the alert code to cocked pistol. Yes, sir. Which is, you know, fun inside lingo, which is real word play that people at Strategic Air Command and within the U.S. Uh, military uses. It refers to, it's like a nickname for that particular level of uh, defense readiness condition. Most people who've watched war games, for example, know about DEFCON, um, D-E-F-C-O-N, which is that defense condition readiness. This is normally on a scale of one to five, with five being the lowest level of readiness. You know, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, one is, hey, we're in the middle of a shooting war. So the big board lights up with the term cocked pistol, which is a nickname. Well, but the interesting thing is, in real life, when you use the term cocked pistol, it means it's an exercise. It means that it's a drill. It's not okay. real life. Because you imagine orders go out over the radio to say we're in cocked pistol if we said we're in you know if we're in defcon one there's a pretty good chance that the soviet union would also hear that through various yeah. channels and they would think that they were actually in the middle of a shooting war or the people that you're telling to go on a drill which is at one point the the people on our b52 think it's just a drill probably because they use the term cocked pistol which is not what you would say if you were actually in this particular situation it probably sounds a lot cooler than than saying DEFCON 1, but to say something like cocked pistol, which is the exercise term. Right. I, I think there's uh, the movie is also replete with a lot of uh, symbolism. Um, I, I think yeah. uh, they really focused uh, this one scene on the cocked uh, pistol. And it seems that uh, the movie is based on a book and therefore it has a lot of little nuances possibly which would not be uh, rightly understandable by folks that who do not follow nuclear uh, weapons issues very closely. But I just also wanted to uh, like talk about what Carol Thorne in her uh, famous essay, uh, Sex and Death in the Rational World, talks about, mm -hmm. about this uh, techno-strategic language, essentially meaning how a lot of the nuclear symbolism and 
the language that is used in uh, these command centers have a have symbols or have uh, icons which are attached to and reflect symbolism of masculinity, which is uh, pretty interesting. But also you're very right to point out that uh, for the longest time, even in the B-52 bombers, the co-pilots and the, not the co-pilots, the crew were not for the longest time also aware that it, they were on a real mission. And they mentioned that probably uh, this is a drill. So it also seems that the movie does uh, touch upon on some of the nuances of what happens or some of the essential time crunched and ethical dilemmas mm-hmm. of following orders, receiving orders and really understanding in the moment the magnitude of uh, some of these orders. Oh, definitely. And I think uh, you hit on two things there that I would loved. I loved that you did. One of which is the fact that it shows how fast people need to be making decisions and probably the people in this movie, if you were following the rules of, you know, deterrence, made their decisions too slow. And even that, you know, not very long in terms of what they were doing in the movie. Uh, but secondly, you know, yeah, these, these terms in uh, our field definitely come, they definitely were not written by women. It's actually really interesting for the movie. There's a co-pilot for, for the B-52 who was, you know, a woman, Captain Monroe. It wasn't until 1994 that they actually allowed women to pilot uh, these kinds of planes um, in, you know, the, U- the U.S. Air Force. So even on it, the movie itself is ahead of its time. I really like the point you make about the shortening of oh, yeah. timelines. That is something that we are concerned about, right? And if one uh, takes a look at the poster of the movie, it actually says four people, three minutes, two choices, one chance for survival. It is apt. It is fitting. And the also, it really tells us about like the severe time crunch and uh, the high pressured environment that uh, military leaders and civilian leaders and political leaders are under to take some uh, very challenging decisions, which actually impact our entire civilization and humanity. The president has to make the decision to launch nuclear weapons faster than the takes for the movie's trailer to play. It's it's crazy. Yes, absolutely right. And that is extremely terrifying to say the least. In, in the movie, at one point, they even decide that it's it, we're even in a worse situation, so we need to escalate the defense readiness condition even further. They say we need to go from cocked pistol to roundhouse, which just sounds like gibberish, and it, it really is because they DEFCON 3 is the level where the nickname is roundhouse, which, as you know, as I mentioned, uh, 3 is a lower level than 1, so it's funny that they decide we're going to escalate the conflict to roundhouse which is a lower level of readiness than DEFCON 1. It doesn't really matter, but it's funny that they decide to go into these kind of terms and everything. Um, Since NATO, Turkey, they're together, the Soviet leadership thinks that this might have been an attack by NATO, so its response uh, is already underway. The Strategic Air Command commander asked for the PSYOP, which I don't think they define in the movie, but it's what it refers to as the single integrated operational plan. Essentially, it's the menu of attack plans that the United States has ready to go, where targets to hit, how many missiles to use, whether it's land-based silos, whether it's the heavy B-52 bombers, a uh, submarine-launched weapon, 
how many warheads to use, what the order, all that stuff is in the single integrated operational plan. It's probably time to brief the president at this point. And sure enough, we, we get introduced to the president, played by Martin Lando. And I love it. He's just sitting in like an armchair in the White House asleep in front of the TV. I actually also really like the scene. I think it really humanizes the president and has this um, portrayal of how some nuclear weapons are on a high uh, trigger alert uh, and levels of readiness is so high. And yet on the other side, it's the complete juxtaposition of how the president is, you know, in his uh, White House, uh, probably relaxing after a, a long, hard day. So it just really showcases two, uh, two juxtaposition of uh, scenes. And I, I, I thought it was very well-timed and well-placed. I think for myself, uh, my recent 3 a.m. moment was earlier this year when my wife woke me up um, after a long night of work. Uh, woke me up at 3 a.m. to say, hey, I think my water broke and we need to go to the hospital because our baby's going to be born. And I was thinking of my brains at that particular Mm -hmm. moment. My first reaction was, no, 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 I'm I'm sure it's fine. I need to go back to sleep. But I imagine if you woke me up and said, you need to pick out what plan within our PSYOP that you have to do to end the world, potentially. Um, I didn't function well enough to call the hospital for, you know, immediately let alone having to talk to, you know, the commander at SAC. It's it's hard. It's a such a difficult decision that these people have to make. And it's because of choices that we've all made about how to structure our, our weapon system to put them on this hair trigger alert. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Tim, uh, that is a sweet anecdote. But also we understand the our political leaders are trained uh, for uh, these mm-hmm. uh, completely uh, difficult and extremely harsh kind of scenarios, right? Uh, like the United States does a lot of red teaming and war gaming uh, for to have the maximum preparedness when it comes to such kind of scenarios. But eventually, when it really comes to taking decisions which involves lives of millions and millions of people, all we always see there are so many things that can go wrong. And that's why very senior experts and also a secretary, William Perry and mm-hmm. Eric Slauscher, they've all mentioned that how the fate of the world has really hung by a, like a very thin margin. And we have uh, been lucky, but we probably luck will not hold out for a very long time. So uh, definitely, it just shows uh, the kind of new, like you know, threats that we face even in this 21st century. With the president, is supposed to right before they become president. Usually, it's one of their first major briefings that they get. Um, that's the most classified briefing you can really get. Is how do you order a launch of a new of your nuclear weapons? I think they traditionally have done it at Blair House, which is a a place that the president usually stays before the inauguration. So usually like the day before or the morning of, they get their briefing. Someone will come in with the nuclear football, the suitcase, open it up and say, here are your codes. Here's what you need to do. Here's the procedure. You know, you should memorize this, but we're going to run through it a couple more times. And a lot of times, either the chief of staff or the president, hopefully, um, and others have talked about why this is a very sobering moment. This is really when they finally understand what they're about to be you know, burdened with. And the president in this movie, he wants um, to give, he wants more time. This SAC wants him to, them to already pre-authorize a nuclear attack because the Soviet Union is preparing its own nuclear strike because since it assumes that the United States just attacked it. Sir, we are facing an extremely serious situation. I have asked for full attack conference. Under my authority, we are moving from cock pistol to roundhouse. Is your EWO there, sir? An unidentified missile, Origin Turkey, detonated over Soviet Donetsk 
at 0530 Zulu. It was not fired by U.S. forces. The Soviets have chosen to launch a strike against us. There has to be a mistake. Turkey's NATO. We certainly wouldn't fire a missile at the Soviet Union. Now, who the hell did? We don't know, sir. It could have been stolen. It could have been a trick. What the hell do you say? Our relations couldn't possibly be better. Sir, I know it's hard to believe. Nevertheless, we are in the secondary stages of a Soviet counterforce strike. Our computers show random attack by Russian submarines, swarm attack by land-based ICBMs. We need your authority, sir. We need the codes, Mr. President. We are under attack. And it also, Strategic Air Command said that there was an incoming nuclear missile from a Russian sub that's going to hit D.C. in 10 minutes. So it's it's pretty pretty quick timelines. Pretty intense, yes. Yeah. The president, though, says he wants more He wants more time. He says it doesn't make any sense. We had, at that point, nuclear weapons based in Turkey. I'm pretty sure most of them at that point were dropped by fighter jets. And we didn't really have a lot of missiles at that point. We had removed the missiles, the Jupiter missiles from Turkey back during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But either way, what would the Soviet Union would just probably assume that we kept something there, uh, kept something hidden. But POTUS, he's told, look, you have to get on Marine One right now. You have to get to Andrews. We have to get you on Air Force One. The president says no. He wants to wait it out and uh, tries to figure out what's going and says, you know, get me the the, the Russian leader on the phone. Right. I think that's when uh, there's this famous dialogue by the president, right, where he says that I'm not going to take decisions on the basis of what the computer yeah. is telling me. And then the general uh, says, well, the goddamn computer is telling you that you just have like 21 minutes before everything just uh, blows up. General, I will not make a decision of this magnitude you without... You don't have to. SIOP has anticipated this. We need your authority for the codes, Mr. President. No, General. This is my responsibility. I will not act precipitously no, on the basis of some goddamn computer. The goddamn computer will be destroyed in 21 minutes, sir. Along with everyone here. I really thought, like, that scene was the starting point of what really gets into the meat of the show about the tensions of civil-military relations. And that really plays out through the sinews of the movie. But I, I, I thought the fact that the president was demanding for more time to come up with better possible options of retaliation or even absorbing what's happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the constant pressure of military generals to act and respond aggressively in, in the face of a looming crisis. What's so interesting about this movie is you could have had a movie where SAC commander was like, president is stalling, I'm just going to do it because that's what we need to do. But they follow the rules. They follow the checklist. And even though the strategic air command is you know they're saying you have this amount of time it's not a lot you have to let us know what to do and even though i'm sure the president had been drilled on this the, there's just it, there's something in the back of the president's mind that's like this doesn't make any sense we're going to hold off so at that point even though you have these best laid plans something's delaying them that's something that they probably if the president at one point said hey what if i uh want some more information and want to delay this stuff. I'm sure those people briefing him said, no, you have to act immediately because here are the timelines and the pressures that you're under. And this is really where in the movie we see the SAC commander, he 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 doesn't order a launch, but he starts moving various assets around. He gets another one of the E-135, uh, which is the, the code name for the mobile launch command post, uh, the looking glass. He gets that up in the air. He calls someone on there. He calls someone the call sign Alice, which is funny. You know, Alice in the looking glass is a... I think yes. it's another sequel as a sequel to uh uh to Alice in Wonderland. I think it's a classic reference to Lewis Carroll 
uh, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I like it. There was a realistic portrayal of uh, like the command and control issues that possibly we and the specificity of which we probably have not seen in any other uh, movie because this movie really starts from where they start showing the escalation rungs and ladders, right? Yeah. So they're playing it out entirely and I, I, I do think that they go into the specifics of adhering to a lot of the protocols that possibly would be in play. Then back at the White House, there's a really quick mention about something that I I thought was very interesting and I wish they got into more detail on this. I think the book does a little bit. They say that the United States and China have a treaty alliance at this point. So if the Soviet Union were to attack, or I guess if the United States or China were to get into a war, a shooting war with Russia, that both sides would defend each other. So at some point, because the United States had looked like it had launched an attack through NATO against the Soviet Union and that Russia was responding back, China had launched a nuclear attack against okay. against Russia. Chinese, in accordance with our treaty, have hit the Russians on their border. We can't even tell whether the Soviet president is still in control. All communications to the Soviet Union are down, sir. Which is very interesting. I'm not 100% sure they can move that quickly with their nuclear arsenal uh, today or then, but either way, there's this imaginary treaty alliance between the United States and China in the movie, and China has has launched its weapons against the Soviet Union faster than the United States did at least. Right. I, I don't think the movie really got into a lot of details explaining how and what really happened over there. It is a major plot angle because I think in retaliation to Chinese attack, uh, the Soviets, they launched a a second round of attack, but then that was mistaken. And like the U.S. commanders thought it was a launch uh, against the United States. But like, again, uh, we know that it was uh, really directed and aimed for China. But also, what do you think, like, like talking about and discussing about this today, it is very seemingly unrealistic right that uh us would have uh, such a treaty alliance with china but like say for example if we look at it in a more hypothetical manner it would be interesting uh, to understand how it really feeds into the entire debate and discussion that we have about u.s treaty alliance and its treaty allies in in europe so yeah uh, like the push and pull of that is uh, pretty interesting and also uh, scary but you're right like the movie makers did not really delve uh, deeper into uh, this scene but I think somewhere in at the end they mentioned that uh, millions were killed in uh, China and also similar losses were suffered in uh, Soviet Union as well. Yeah there's there's no mention at all about anyone else in NATO like there's no coordination with them it's not a lot of time right but there's no discussion about what the United Kingdom or France are doing with their nuclear arsenal in the book, there's a mention about how they decided to stay neutral, which right. is kind of ironic that China is defending the United States in this yes. war, but not its NATO yes. allies. Uh, so kind of kind of jerk move on on part of uh, this hypothetical <laughs> scenario of the UK and, and France. It is fascinating because if there was a war between Russia and the United States during the Cold War, China's not just going to sit there. It's going to figure out a way to get an, either get involved or protect its own interest. In the movie, it decides its own interest is to probably faster than it actually could given the way that a lot of china's weapons are demated the the warheads are not on the delivery systems most of the time right and even that's true even till date as in yeah. uh, china still um, 
follows a no first use policy and uh, they have a recess state of deterrence which means uh, their nuclear warheads are not mated with their uh, delivery vehicles so i do like the usage of a hypothetical jerk uh, <laughs> scene inserted in the movie but i also think that it, it is it has some ramifications to for us uh, to think about like how really the alliance partnership in today's context really plays out in in case of a limited uh, nuclear launch it's very interesting the movie doesn't really describe that particular side of it all that well in terms of matching reality uh, but i will give it credit for this in the situation room in the white house uh, which I you know I've I've visited before. It's it's never portrayed all that well in movies, but this is a little bit closer to what it looks like. It's always so dark, which is so funny because why would you have a dark room when you're trying to read papers and and talk yeah. to people? But anyways, when the president gets a, a message from the Soviet premier over the hotline, the, the red phone, which is usually described, you know, shown in in Doctor Strangelove, for example, because it didn't exist when Doctor Strangelove came out, uh, but it's often shown as like a telephone call and those kinds of things. In in real life, uh, it's actually as it's described in the movie. It's like a teletext type right. thing. It's a printed message translated already into English right. or into Russian so that there isn't that level of confusion you might get when you're waiting for an interpretation or, you know, miscommunication in tone. Everything is sent by message, uh, by actual text. And I love the fact the movie did that. And maybe it's b more boring to show on TV, but I actually thought they did a good job because instead of the president or one of like the aides reading it, it does a voiceover from the Russian premiere. Mr. President, by now you will know a nuclear device was detonated over the Soviet city of Donetsk. At that time, it appeared the missile was launched by NATO forces from Turkey, and our defensive system retaliated automatically. We now realize the first missile was launched by dissident members of our own military who feared our vastly improved relations and who conspired to overthrow this government and force war between our two countries. Here's where we are with the movie. The Russian leader has, in this, you know, love letter to the the, the the U.S. president, has essentially said, look, we thought it was a missile coming from NATO. We're pretty clear now, as Sylvia mentioned, it's a rogue attack. It's from an element of the Russian military who did not like how friendly the U.S. and the Soviet Union were getting. So they wanted to break that up. And the way they were going to break it up was to have Russia attacked with a secret attack from a NATO country. So that must have been that airplane that was landing uh, or was taken off from from Turkey earlier in the movie. They wanted to trigger an automatic Russian strike back at the United States. This rogue element uh, wanted a nuclear exchange, very similar to how Jack D. Ripper tried to start a war with, with Russia um, in Doctor Strangelove, just kind of a reverse uh, of, of that particular play, which I thought was really interesting. I wonder if those uh, rogue element commanders in Russia thought that the capitalist West were removing the fluoride from their vodka, uh, since we're playing Doctor Strangelove yeah. reverse game here. Yeah, I but uh, like, like, think about it, it's the 1990s, and like some of these fears of like rogue elements and the concept and the fear of lose nukes is so real during oh, so that real. time. So yes, I, I think that way this uh this inserting this idea of rogue elements and non-state actors and dissidents playing a role or and uh, like you know getting hold of a few nuclear warheads seems so real. And th that's why like we see some uh such great initiatives like the cooperative uh, threat reduction uh, kind of efforts between after the Cold War. Uh, between uh, U.S. and Russia, essentially to minimize some of these uh, risks, which uh, I, I think was extremely well put uh, in the movie. The company that I work for, which is called CRDF Global, we were founded 
to do that kind of work to cooperative threat reduction to help reduce the potential for now scientists and 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 uh and other experts who no longer have a job building nuclear weapons and ma- maintaining those nu- those wep- nuclear weapons, but they still have bills to pay. They still have families to feed. Right. And they're not being paid by the Russian military anymore. Um, so where are they going to go? The worry was they were going to go to Libya or North Korea or somewhere else, a terrorist actor, for example. You know, we found civilian opportunities for them. And there were similar efforts to cut uh, weapons up that were no longer needed to bring them from places like Kazakhstan or bring them from Ukraine or Belarus back to mainland Russia. These were all really important stuff. So this movie was a little bit of ahead of its time. Absolutely. And also it just really showcases like the extent of bilateral efforts uh, that both countries uh, really took uh, US and Russia in order to stabilize relationship. Uh, so I, I thought that was uh, pretty well uh, put. But mm-hmm. Tim, I kind of wanted to ask you, what did you think about uh, the uh, the three options that was given by the Soviet Union uh, president and he says that he and the choices that he lays out to voters is first accept damage and Russia will stop uh, second respond with limited counterattack and he mentions that a Soviet Union will be willing to accept a loss of uh, six to nine uh, million six to nine million people yeah <laughs> million uh, people oh my god uh, and the third option he gave was a full-scale commitment to a nuclear war to end the world. Now, I I really thought um, some, and especially the last one, was very escalatory. So the Soviet Union leader, the premier, basically says, hey, it's not my fault. We have an automatic retaliation system. We thought a missile was coming at us from NATO. We had to act immediately. There was a computer that acted immediately, or we just acted immediately. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a limited strike we're going to hit your bomber bases, ICBM bases in Montana. We're going to destroy NORAD. We're going to destroy Strategic Air Command. And just for her symbolic gesture, we're going to destroy Andrews Air Force Base. Because that's where you would leave, you know, Washington, D.C. from. So it's very funny that that's the limited strike because we'll get into this right now. That's a huge limited strike back. You, Absolutely. If you go after the other side's military bases and their command and control systems and you destroy you you launch a weapon that close to the to the United States like capital Andrews is not that far from Washington DC and if it is true that is the place that the president would likely leave you know Air Force 1 from that that's always been the plan to get the president if they're if they're at the White House you get them on the helicopter to Andrews you get them on a plane you get them in the air that's always the plan it's not to go into some sort of secret bunker or something it's to get them in the air and then that plane can fly for 72 hours or something before it has to land and get repaired that's always been the plan so there's reasons why if you're trying to do a limited nuclear strike back uh you don't go after those places because if you remove you know you remove uh the command and control system you remove the president's ability to escape dc you're forcing their hand into one of those more full-scale commitments because if they no longer have the ability to do a more limited strike back if they have no ability to retaliate after that first strike comes in you're forcing them to use all their weapons immediately otherwise they're not going to have that ability and then you don't want to get into a situation where the other side you know being the united states feels that it only has one option which is to do those more you know large scale attacks i it is interesting that you mentioned about the doomsday machine and what what really uh, like did jump out to me was the fact that uh, can a doomsday machine really make uh, such a decisions it mm-hmm. really seems and as you rightly pointed out it really seems like it is a decapitation counter force attack 
which means uh, that the entire leadership is under attack and it introduces a lot of instability, the first strike instability, and it really ties the United States hands to go for a second strike uh, launch uh, from uh, uh, SSBN force. So I, I do not see how, and especially it is not well explained in the movie, how it is an automatic doomsday right. machine making such a decision or was there an interface of a rational, I wouldn't call this a rational, but <laughs> a, a sense of a human inputs as well in terms of what are the basis uh, to strike. And it definitely does not look like a, a limited uh, retaliation. Yeah. Is it is it one of those scenarios where it's like war games where we set you know the, in the in the movie war games the U.S. nuclear launch command and they probably only mean the missiles because you can't automatically program I guess you could but automatically program an airplane to take off and then go drop a bomb or to automatically program a submarine to you know surface and then launch its missiles it means the land based missiles that are ready to go kind of in a moment's notice can launch in you know three minutes basically it's not clear if it's a computer making that decision as you said or if it's the Russian premier opening up the, the their nuclear football which is called the Shaget and then making that decision you know really quickly it's very odd for that computer to make that decision specifically because those targets are not equivalent they're not very similar you know apparently one nato bomb that's exploding over this one russian city and now it's this huge response back but you know what these are the kind of questions that we didn't necessarily know about all that much in the 1990s how what the russians were thinking about it but we do know now that there was this russian doomsday machine it's like a doomsday adjacent machine called uh in russia it was called perimeter we we, right. we we call it a lot in the united states called dead hand dead hand being something that if you die your hand drops on a button which causes something bad to happen to the person that killed you essentially you take away the agency the idea that if you hey you can you can't kill me before i can attack you if you kill me you're gonna die no matter what so this system called perimeter did exist in russia it might still exist today we're not really sure there are often articles time to time of in the national interest or defense one talking about the still existence and presence of a, a perimeter uh, but it's just uh, scary to uh, say uh, the least and i'm i wonder uh, like with all the discussions on ai and uh, mm-hmm. like taking the human out of loop it really showcases some of the cleavages of uh, how a miscalculation can uh, play out. And this is something that uh, experts who have uh, delved in nuclear policy decision-making is trying to make aware the public and uh, decision-makers now uh, that uh, there, there is the threat of uh, taking the human out of a loop in terms of uh, like any kind of decision-making when it comes to nuclear weapons. I'm scared about situations where we find ourselves with the greater integration and entanglement of emerging technologies, which probably are doing a lot of other things effectively in terms of our targeting capabilities are becoming better, but then that it is also putting all different kinds of escalatory pressures when it comes to decision-making within shortened windows and shortened periods of timeline. So I am really scared of the <laughs> perimeter. What What are your thoughts on this, uh, Tim? Yeah, I mean, the movie basically really describes it as if it was like war games where the machine is in control and it's going to launch based on what it, it interprets to be an attack like almost immediately basically in the movie perimeter in real life though was a little bit different um normally the way this system would work is it was off 
and except in terms of a crisis or if it thought there was an incoming nuclear strike, someone would have to turn it on. And the idea is that it would signal to the United States that, hey, dead hand is activated. If we get any sort of seismic measurements or radiological sampling or overpressure, air pressure type things that if you put all those together, it's probably a nuclear attack. What we would do is it would communicate with its command and control operators who would actually be the ones to push the button, turn the key, drop the bombs. And the idea is the system would uh, signal to everybody, hey, we're detecting there's an incoming attack. Go ahead and start doing your preparations for launching. And then uh, there was no signal from the leadership, whether it was the military or the civilians, to stand down. Then the computer would assume that a nuclear combat had started, and then it would give the launch authority to someone else buried really deep in a bunker, really far away from any sort of other places where they could be attacked. And that individual would send out a radio signal, which would launch a rocket, a silo-based uh, rocket, and it would fly over all the different places that where there would be some sort of, you know, a silo or a, a bomb space or a submarine, it would launch this rocket that would send out the signal, go, 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 go. The idea here is by turning on dead hand, you're telling the world, we have the will to respond. If you kill us, but with a nuclear attack, this thing will still go off and you'll still get the signal. So there's no benefit to destroying the, the civilian leadership or the military leadership. You're essentially saying the human element is removed. And oddly enough, the Russians will always argue that this would give the Russian leadership more time to make a decision, they can feel a little bit more confident that they have the time to make a decision before the bombs land on Moscow, for example, because there's this other system that can make the decision for them. So that way they can wait it out. Maybe there's a false alarm. Maybe it's a conventional attack. Maybe it's not from the place that they thought it was coming from. Those are the, some of the things that allow them to have a, a bit more leeway. The Russians had thought about some sort of war games, doomsday machine type scenario where there would be automatic Russian military firing the weapons based on a computer decision, but they rejected it as, as impractical for reasons which at this point must be all too obvious, to quote Dr. Strangelove himself. But to be fair to the movie, probably we knew about this kind of system potential, but we didn't really know any of the details. It didn't come out really until David Hoffman and others did some of their great research uh, after the end of the Cold War. And we were able to actually go in and, and talk to some of the scientists and say, hey, what did you do? And even some of those scientists have given different uh, opinions and, and facts on what the system itself was. Right. I, I really uh, think that uh, the existence of you know machines like the perimeter or the dead hand is really stretching on the concept of deterrence. It's yeah. like establishing maximum deterrence but i think over the course of the almost four or five years of cold war history i think both united states then soviet union now russia realized that that machines can fail and there has been ample examples and especially when the united states declassified broken arrows like yeah. we look at several which has declassified several of the nuclear accidents that has uh, taken place I think it really makes it clear that machines can fail. And that's why complete reliance on machine to establish deterrence is something that really undermines the concept on which nuclear weapons and the fact that we still have these weapons is premised on the fact that these weapons will not be used and they are only in play so as to prevent catastrophic war like the World War Three. But also during this point, we see like uh, there are some scenes in the movie 
where uh, like the general mentions that we don't even know who is in power and who is in mm-hmm. control in Soviet Union. We don't know. Are we like? Does the Soviet premier still runs the show? Is he still the head of uh, of the country? Does he have uh, the power uh, to launch? Uh, so it seems that there is a there's a shroud of ambiguity when it comes to nuclear weapons policy making and i think that was very realistically portrayed um, i i think with better communication and command and control uh, now we have a probably a fairer understanding i think the hotlines are much more effective uh, at this uh, present moment but we also see and realize the importance of hotlines not only to understand or like you know uh, communicate during a crisis but also the importance of hotlines to deescalate and diffuse a crisis oh definitely and i i think the movie does a really good job of describing if you have all these hotlines and things people are still going to assume that well that's not the russian premier on the phone or if it is someone texting you a message it's false it's a uh, it's to make you delay leaving the white house because what ends up happening is we see lots of stuff we see the bomber wing scramble and get up in the air that first they think it's just a, a, a drill but then they learn that it's not they they go through a, a pretty accurate depiction of getting the authorization codes and being able to know you know here's what we need to do we need to fly to this this particular positive control point and wait for the orders to launch or to drop their bombs we see detonations of warheads over the bomber base um one of the the explosions actually temporarily blinds uh probably maybe permanently blinds one of the co-pilots of our b-52 crew uh we hear about a, a detonation that explodes basically in north dc that was meant for andrews and may or may have been an accident and, and overshot its target and, and hit near the white house or it could have always been the plan and we don't, you know, we never really know, but we do know that the the president now is uh, in the, in some rubble trying to figure out what's happening. And we also get this word of another wave of Russian missiles coming towards the United States. At this point, president says, all right, we're in a full scale shooting war. We're going to hit multiple targets. We're going to do basically option two of firing all of our weapons at these other places. Hopefully it's an equivalent attack, that kind of thing. General, I want a response designed as closely as possible to the Soviet attack. Now, under no circumstances are their losses to exceed ours. Do you understand? Sir, we believe the Soviet president is out of position and their military are running things now. You are being conned on a level unprecedented in human history. General, I will hear no more of this. Now, you instruct the computer. At the appropriate time, I will activate the codes through the proper civilian authorities as the law stipulates. President breaks out the biscuit, which is the little card containing the nuclear authorization codes, gives his order to launch. Everything proceeds, you know, well enough. The Polar Bear 1 gets their gets their codes, gets their emergency war orders to go ahead and carry about their mission. But then as the POD- POTUS finally gets on Marine 1 and a helicopter, and after looking over North D.C. and sees riots and explosions and fire and most of the city, you know, destroyed, he's heading towards Andrews. Then uh, he goes, no, we can't go to Andrews. Andrews, because it's destroyed. Let's get to Dover, which is in Delaware. Uh, it's a it's a base in Delaware. There's something happening. 
I don't know, really know where the target was, that, but some another nuclear explosion took place, knocks out the helicopter. But right as the helicopter gets destroyed, we find out that the president learns that, oh no, those weapons were going from Russia to China. They weren't going to the United States. Right. You know, still, you know, the president should care about <laughs> the fact that China is about to be attacked. But either way, the president now is down. We think he might be killed. And now they're looking for uh, a new person in the line of succession. It turns out that they can't reach the VP or anyone else in the line of succession. So instead, they get the interior secretary. I think he's eighth in line. I think that's uh, yeah. it was mentioned in one of the reviews that it was uh, he's the eighth in line. But I, I really also wanted to talk uh, briefly about uh, the fact that the president and they showcase it at a little bit of length where he just does not want to leave his bunker. Yes, and very interesting. Want to, yeah, he doesn't want to get on the Marine One. I know in, in realistic terms, that will never be the case. But however, it also shows this humane side, this side where the president really does not want to essentially relinquish his responsibilities at the White House. And I found that uh, scene uh, to just show like some of the moral dilemmas and uh, like the leadership of also the president uh, really comes out very uh, in a very prominent manner in that uh, scene. So I thought that scene was very well portrayed. I think it's probably would be more like we see in the TV shows, uh, Madam Secretary. There's an episode called Night Watch that I right. covered on the podcast with uh, Jamie Withorn. And it's probably more like that, where they didn't give the president much of a chance to debate whether he should go on Air Force One. They, they got him on a plane. They didn't get him on Air Force One. They got him on Night Watch, which is another kind of mobile uh, command center. But they got him on a helicopter, got him on the plane because that they have to do that. And while they're on their ways, normally when they would be making these decisions to open the nuclear football and where to attack and, mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. But it, it's it's very quick and it, it moves so quickly because people are about to die that are in the decision tree. So once the president gives the orders, Zach gives the orders to Looking Glass and says, all right, go ahead and start telling people to do what they need to do to launch and everything, but still not the missiles, which is so interesting. They're only giving orders to the submarines and to the bombers, but mostly the bombers. At no point in this process do they launch the missiles at any point, which is very interesting. Usually that would be the thing you would do first when you're in a shooting war. Right. And I, I think uh, they, in a way, also explained it in one of the later scenes where they talk about that we're talking of, about deploying the bombers also because that buys you time. Yeah. So uh, we so I thought like that was pretty interesting because with the uh, missile launch, it would be so quick. It would be just 30 minutes. And uh, with the bombers, like they showed a time frame of almost eight hours. So that was interesting. I do think that throughout the movie, the United States leadership was portrayed in a manner which was calibrated also because this was not, this was an unprovoked action. It was not provoked by the United States, but then this is a clear case of an accidental uh, launch. And it seems that the United States leadership is on the back foot in terms of absorbing retaliation. But I, I think like it would be interesting to see uh, like in a hypothetical context, see how it plays out, because I feel uh, that the deterrence theory and like with emerging uh, technologies right now, the kind of thinking has undergone a distinct shift. Now we do not uh, think that, okay, it is like one strike uh, from uh, mm -hmm. an adversary and a retaliation counter strike in response to that. 
now i think we have multiple theaters right to launch an attack like now the avenues and the theaters has just multiple for example now we can also see cyber attacks right, right. or we can uh, look how countries ability to develop uh, weapons to take uh, down like satellites i i think that is also opening another new domain of theater warfare so it's just interesting to see how this movie is still within the bipolar context but eventually uh, it would it would be played out in a hypothetical uh, context very differently but i also thought the some of the portrayals of the shock waves and uh, light waves which essentially probably blinds the president and also uh, if i'm not mistaken and also one of the uh, co pilots in the mm-hmm. vcp2 uh, bomber i think they do a good job of describing in, you know, there's only one version of a mushroom cloud at one point in the movie I, they do a good job of describing everything you know the the flash the shock wave and then the shock wave a little bit later yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we do see the mushroom cloud at one point because the crew is being attacked by some Russian MiGs and they decide that what they were going to do is drop one of the nuclear bombs on one side of a mountain and then get on the other side of the mountain and then the MiG would be destroyed by the blast. It's clever. I don't really have any thoughts on that other than that it certainly makes the TV movie a little bit more exciting. But that's when we, the one of the only times we do see a mushroom cloud off in the distance here and it looks fine for a TV movie for sure. You're right to say like I I thought that was a clever move. We can get into a whole we're running out of time here a little bit but there's all kinds of interesting things that the movie describes about like what are the defensive systems on a B52 cuz it's a slow heavy moving bomber. These are things that these are bombers that were used during the Vietnam conflict. So they have some defensive things, they have some like guns and that was there and they show that in the movie, but you know these things are not meant to they're meant to basically be kind of fly under the radar and they're not stealth bombers by any means. Um they probably I don't know if they would be usually accompanied by fighter jets to defend them. The point is is that you fly, you put out as many of these things out there as you can and the idea is that um the Russians wouldn't get them all basically but they wouldn't be the thing you would do a first strike with for example uh you would do those with the missiles before strategic air command is destroyed i think that's it's a really good scene where the sat commander who is just doing his job he's not a war hungry you know person he's just trying to follow his his orders knowing that he's about to be destroyed and the, everybody at that particular base but he gives his order to to alice in the looking glass and says you know, the president has said, go ahead and do your thing. And they do. We, we meet, we get to meet, in addition to James Earl Jones, we get to meet the uh, the guy who plays Dr. Kelso on Scrubs, uh, which hey. is great casting for a guy who's just a grumpy person trying to do his job. We are introduced to the Secretary of the Interior again. He's now assumed to be the president. He's brought aboard Nightwatch, which is that other aerial mobile command center that can be used to launch orders. He's briefed by various military leaders on what to do next. And I I thought this was really super interesting. How do we fight the war? The team is divided. We get this admiral named Harpoon, codenamed Harpoon, uh, who we meet earlier in the movie, uh, very briefly. But he's a guy who's trying to have some calm to the situation. He says, let's put the bombers out there. As you mentioned, they're eight hours to their targets. They'll signal to the Russians that we're still willing to fight. But look, what if we start sending the bombers out and then recalling them? Something we can do that will signal that we're willing to back down. Hey, everybody, we're not going to keep this going. And that's something you can do when you, if you launched a missile from a submarine or if you launched a missile from the land-based silos. Once those are in the air, despite what Hollywood shows people, there's no recall button. There's no abort the launch button. Once those things are in the air, they're going to hit their targets or they're going to miss but they're going to still, you know, do their thing. And then you get Colonel Fargo, played by Rip Torn, who says, no, Russia's weak. If you back down, they're going to interpret that as weakness. Mr. President, I'm Colonel Fargo. What do you do around here? 
Soviet capabilities experts. Right. It may be that the Admiral is overestimating the enemy. Most Soviet bombers are so old, they still have propellers. The Minnesota Air National Guard could probably knock them down. Mr. President, historical fact, the Soviets have always been willing to accept massive losses to achieve victory. Colonel, this isn't the 1950s. They're not looking for new worlds to conquer anymore. Mr. President, I have a very hard time believing that the Soviets want this war any more than we do. Recall some of our bombers and see how the Soviets respond. Well, I... Mr. President, there is another solution. Cut the head off the chicken. Destroy the Soviet leadership so they can't order any more nuclear strikes, which I think is really funny. I bet the people, if they were still in Russia trying to justify for bigger budgets for the perimeter dead hand, probably showed this movie and said, look, this is how the American army is thinking. The American military, they want to destroy civilian leadership. So I think that was a really fascinating debate. And uh, where does the president land on this? This one scene really has uh, the crux of uh, the movie in terms of really a good portrayal of how leadership matters. And I think uh, sure. Admiral, who is codenamed as Harpoon, um, mentions that like those attacks by the second round of attacks by the Soviet Union were aimed at China and not the United States. And therefore, he urges the in interior secretary, who is now acting as the president, to recall uh, the bombers. And, and suddenly we see a very uh, war-thirsty general who talks about uh, this idea of like not bowing to the Soviets. And which really plays into some of the essential concepts of nuclear strategy, right? Like, what re how do you define success or what is victory in a nuclear war? Yeah, the, and the Interior Secretary, he's never had the serious briefing about the nuclear football or uh, the PSYOP. He probably doesn't even know what the PSYOP is because he's, right. you know, what's his job? He thinks about, like, the interior of the United States, you know, oil and, and uh, preserving the national parks and all that kind of stuff. He's not as concerned with, with nuclear attacking and things. So what, what does he do? He just doesn't want to lose and you're right he doesn't know what that means you know there are millions of people dying he just wants to not feel like he's losing are you telling me that they hit more of our installations than we hit theirs sir you have to realize this is not the kind of war where you can add up the score to see who wins believe me mister winning is everything he seems more willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Ruskies than the previous president is we talk about previous president we find out that it actually the president Martin Landau is still alive Still alive. Yes. He, he's, he survives the crash. They get him to a hospital, but not before the interior president, who, which I'm going to start calling the inferior president at this point. <laughs> the inferior president agrees with Colonel Fargo to order an attack against the Soviet leadership. He's afraid of, you know, seeing like he's losing the war. The Admiral Harpoon, he resigns, but he still gives the biscuit to the inferior president who orders Looking Glass uh, to start attacking the Soviet leadership. And it, it turns out that the, uh, the code name for this attack plan is called the Grand Tour, because it goes to all the different places where the civilian leadership in Russia, the military leadership in Russia might have been based at. The, the, the movie really tries to get at this question of whether or not military leaders would follow through with these kinds of orders. Right. Because Alice gets the, gets the order. He tries to talk the president down. Right. And he finds out that Colonel Fargo is doing the advising at this point. He knows, Alice knows that Colonel Fargo is a hawk, basically. Mm -hmm. And he tries to slow roll everything a little bit, but he doesn't say no. He just says, 
he kind of slows everything down a tiny little bit, which I think is very interesting because there were rumors very early on during the Trump administration of potential opportunities where, say, Trump were to order a nuclear attack that the Department of Defense or other leaders would be able to ignore the order or to talk him down, those kinds of things. Secretary Mattis was at one point kind of rumored to be someone who could block these kinds of attacks if, if the if President Trump decided one day to wake up and, and do an attack. But I think the movie shows that this is false. And I think that's really true as well. It's very likely that if the Secretary of Defense were to say no, you would fire the Secretary of Defense and you would pick up a new one, which we've seen in real life is something that happens quite often yeah. uh, when when the president feels like their orders aren't being issued. I think really... And that's what it, what it is in real life. The president is the person who makes the decision. And even if that happens to be the interior secretary at this point, they get to decide. And it's you can slow it down by just procedural blocking. But ultimately, the president doesn't have to get the approval of anyone else to do this. He makes a decision or she makes a decision that order can be directly given uh, to, to, to the lowest level of command, really. And things can, can go. And, and that's, I think uh, the movie describes that pretty well. There's no way of blocking this, maybe slightly stalling it. In some of the scenes, it seems that the acting president uh, willingly did not adhere uh, to some of the good counsel because it was uh, laid out. seemed at this point of time, we were also uh, getting information about how the Soviet Union have also called back uh, their uh, bombers. So it again, like somehow opens a bit of like a window of opportunity for the acting uh, president to de-escalate. But however, he, he it seems that he does not want to appear weak uh, in front yeah. of the uh, Ruskies. He doesn't, and he's not communicating uh, a willingness to back down to anybody. Um, but kind of ironically, what does is we go back to Polar Bear 1, and when they get their order to do the grand tour, the co-pilot, Captain Monroe, she decides she's not going to follow through with this. She's going to basically do a mutiny and just refuses to to do the order. And then you get this really fascinating back and forth between um, the captain and the co-captain about all of this. And, you know, she basically quits and she goes down. <laughs> the, the captain gives her a cyanide pill and says, you're relieved of command. Right. It, it just seems that co-pilot understands what the grand tour really means. It mm -hmm. means launching a massive decapitation uh, strike and taking out not just the Soviet premier, but also all the elected and important officials in uh, KGB and uh, Soviet uh, parliament. So it seems uh, that from the word get-go, she's against uh, this move, which uh, causes a lot of cascading effects uh, in the B-52 uh, uh, bomber crew because uh, again uh, she is being touted as coward and it just like there's a, a like snowballing of different uh, events and incidents that uh, take uh, takes place but again I feel that it also speaks to the fact that at the end when human beings are involved it also seems that things will even though all the officers are trained to follow protocol human beings are susceptible to emotion. Right. And this is what I, I think this scene uh, portrayed. You know what this means? Yeah. It means we don't have to drop a million tons of TNT on a bunch of civilians. Isn't that better for God's sake? You mean more satisfying? Damn right. Maybe it'll help get this thing over with faster. Faster? You do not kill the enemy's leaders. You know that. They know that. Somebody's got to be there to turn it off. 
Absolutely. And and she eventually convinces the captain to also back down. Turn around. What ends up happening is that the argument that she makes about how we need to leave someone to be able to turn this off, we can't kill all of the civilian leadership because then there's no one to stop the war. That's a convincing argument eventually for, you know, for, for the captain, probably also based on their previous romantic relationship and everything. They decide to turn around. And that is interpreted by the Russian leadership as the United States is backing down, which the um, original POTUS, when he wakes up in the hospital, he is trying to convince the Soviet premier to to recall their order. And there's a bit of accidental de-escalation, which was not intended when the people made the mutiny. And it's very fascinating. There's a lot of calls back and forth between the, the president... Uh, looking glass, the inferior president, all these different debates about what to do and kind of how to be able to back down this safely or not. And really, ultimately, the the way this has made it, it happens is that um, the original POTUS, he gets in contact with Alice on the looking glass. He doesn't have the authorization codes anymore because, you know, he was in a helicopter crash, which which actually does match some real life stories where, say, when Ronald Reagan, someone had tried to kill him with, with an assassination attempt. When he was in the hospital, his biscuit was uh, ripped out of his suit jacket and left on the floor in a bloody pile of clothes um, and pe- someone had to go back and get it later. This is an example of that. Okay. President doesn't have his codes anymore. Can't prove who he is. But eventually, POTUS says the real name for Alice. He says, I'm sorry, sir. For God's sakes, it's me, Charlie. Look, we got to stop this damn thing now. It's down to us. Recall the bomber, Sam. What? You heard me. We have a new commander-in-chief. So he's able to order the bombers to be recalled, but he can't recall the Navy's submarines. I guess that's, I don't, don't know if that's true because I figure Looking Glass could do everything. Um, he needs the inferior secretary to back down. Or in this scenario, he needs the inferior secretary to die so that the original POTUS is back in the top line of succession is able to issue those codes because when the Navy's submarines are giving two conflicting orders, back down or shoot your missiles, they go with the original order, which was to shoot their missiles. The plan, eventually what happens is that Looking Glass decides to ram the airplane night watch that the inferior president is on, brings both planes down, and they were able to crash they were able to crash the both those those planes in a very heroic uh, situation, and the original POTUS is able to issue the recall code to the submarines, and the captain and the co-captain of Polar Bear 1 fly off into the sunset to begin a new life together in the dawn's early light, which I thought was a really fascinating way to end the movie. I thought the, the sacrifice made by Looking Glass and also the Night Watch was a poignant scene and it seems that a lot of officials were unconvinced about the instructions mm-hmm. that they were receiving by the acting uh, president and suddenly like you know it just opens a, i believe a pandora's box of some of the exciting policy questions that we have in terms of uh, spuriousness of information and especially in this 21st century when we have social media and the information explosion that our leaders are subjected to and the authenticity of those information i i think uh, like it, it like makes a very interesting case for us uh, to study in the 21st century but going back to the movie i i think like uh, the self-sacrifice in order to save millions uh, made by the night watch and uh, looking glass uh, was uh, i think was quite a poignant scene it's a someone pointed this out online that if the captain of night watch realized what was happening and he slowed the plane to allow the other one to catch up he could have also just been like oh okay i get what's happening here and then like dive bomb the plane into the ocean would have also been something 
that could have maybe saved everybody on Looking Glass, but it wouldn't have been as heroic for everybody, I guess. Uh, Anyways, so that's the movie plot here. Um, Let's get a little quick super critical, because I think we actually covered a lot of the nuke plot discussion uh, previously. But one thing I really wanted to ask here about was, you know, one of the podcast listeners that we have, uh, he asked a question over on our Facebook page. Uh, Chris, he asked us to dive a little bit deeper into the mindsets of the men and women that are that are you know prosecuting the war here, you know, from the president down to the the crew of the B fifty two, um, and kind of what their mental thoughts are here. And I I, I thought it was really interesting. That's a good question. It's a, I'm glad the movie does cover some of this stuff pretty well. It's part of a program that you and I were both in, uh, which is the 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 project on nuclear issues through the um, CSIS think tank. Uh, we got to visit. Um, actually, I don't know. Have you been able to visit uh, Barksdale? Air Force Base, yes. Out of this, probably very soon. One of the next. Oh, but I went to the Strategic Command in Omaha. That's even cooler. A presentation, so yeah, I, I think that is one of my cool, a uh, new geek stuff that I have done. So you got to visit Strategic Air Command. Um, I visited Barksdale Air Force Base down in Louisiana, which is where there's a B fifty two base and we got to talk a little bit with some of the crew members um we got to you know tour around in a b-52 and it's very interesting to see all of that and all of the crew and leadership there were they were pretty uh calm about their mission you know they they were not there they didn't say things like we doubt whether or not this is a good idea they just you know their job is to follow through and that's what they say uh in advance of this but you know a counterpoint that i wanted to, to point out here is um a really interesting observation made by dr bruce blair uh who has recently passed away he was an amazing member of our community and he was his work on um, the the logic of accidental nuclear war was one of the very first things I ever read on on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, and it's really a huge loss uh, for our community. But his 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 impact is really felt, and I thought of him when this question was asked because he you know was a former missileer. He's a former you know person who would work at one of those Minuteman bases, and he he was asked this question in an interview, uh, and he said basically about his time as a young missileer. He said, "quote We had been conditioned like Pavlov's dogs to expect certain war orders." flown in certain sequences culminating in the launch of all 50 of our missiles everything else was above our pay grade no little lights of conscience uh, flickered in our minds launch officers in the early 20s like myself rarely struggled with the moral question of following orders that could potentially kill so many innocent civilians it was all rationalized in the name of deterrence and then when he was asked later on to reflect about some more on the possible scenarios that he would be ordered to launch his missiles and kill millions, uh, he talked about false alarms and the heightened states of readiness during the Cold War. And he said, quote, I was on alert in an underground launch control center in Montana when he received an order to increase the level of alert for his unit. I think this was during the Yom Kippur War. He said that order came through just before midnight. He received it. He decoded it. He realized it was a valid order. It was a very exciting evening. It involved opening the safe that was locked up. My crewmate and I pulled out the launch codes that would have been used to authenticate an actual launch order. We pulled out the launch keys that would have to be turned in order to fire our missiles. And as part of our preparation, we strapped into our chair like seatbelts to brace for a possible incoming nuclear explosion that would rock and roll our capsule. And so we were kind of worried that we may be at the very early stages of nuclear exchange. And he talks even more with these interviews that kind of going through this process and turning out that, you know, there were false alarms and there were all these kind of tightened moments of how quick the president needs to make these kind of decisions and how ultimately it's in the hands of a 20 year old to you know, turn the key, he decided to start to write and talk and try to convince people 
people to you know de-escalate our control systems, to demate our weapons, to go off of where we can this heightened state of alert. And that kind of de-alerting is what the term here is to to take us off of that kind of high alert status is really fascinating. I, you know, we're still kind of at a high alert argument uh, today, but this is an example of someone who was trained not to care about these things. And then ultimately later on when he left the military, tried to make an impact on some of these uh, particular topics. Yeah, that was pretty profound and also kind of gave me uh, goosebumps. But um, I it made me uh, think about one of uh, the books that I have uh, read recently. And it's uh, by a former defense secretary, William Perry. And mm-hmm. he wrote in his book, uh, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink, and where he talks about uh, that it was by luck that the United States and Russia avoided a nuclear holocaust during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I I definitely think like some of these understandings and underpinnings of how policy is played out, um, narrated by experts and practitioners who have been um, at these important places making these decision making is important for us to understand or to have a better education about these uh, very terrifying weapons we still have in such large quantities. And it really does show, too, how important leadership is. You know, what person is in control of these things really does matter, even though the system is designed to any rational thinker is supposed to be able to understand the consequences and make the rational choice and, you know, decide whether to use or not use. And if everything's working great, then we'll never have to use them because... There's this mutually assured destruction system set up. But as you mentioned so many times, these kind of leadership things matter, whether it's William William Perry or Colonel Fargo. You know, it really does matter, you know, who's in those particular scenarios. And everything is so much more complicated these days when it comes to, you know, deciding who is attacking you, attributing it what to do in response. It's not always going to be a bolt out of the blue having to make a decision. It's going to be this, well, shoot, now our satellites are being knocked down. There's a cyber attack. There's this conflict in the Middle East, and we have no longer been able to get a hold through our hotline of the Russian president. You know, what do you do then? You know, these things are going to be more complicated. Absolutely. And leadership matters. And we are we have been talking about the United States predominantly, and it is a democracy. And like, it's terrifying when we think about countries which have like, like which are which are not democratic uh, systems and which are more uh, autocratic in nature and especially when we have issues of like pre-delegation mm-hmm. or the usage of tactical nuclear uh, weapons or uh, battlefield uh, nuclear weapons uh, like the entire question about who is really in charge and who gives the launch orders really plays an important role and especially it really makes me uh, think about India and Pakistan and and the lack of clarity of red lines between the uh, two countries and especially the fact uh, that um, like Pakistan has amply made it aware uh, to the Indian leadership that they will not hesitate to use uh, tactical nuclear weapons in in a crisis. So I still think that uh, there are important lessons to be drawn from uh, this movie in terms of uh, questions of uh, pre-delegation and uh, launch authority. Yeah, and the movie doesn't even talk about anybody but China and the United States and Russia and really doesn't talk about what happens to China at all. In the book, apparently, a Soviet missile is detonated over India, which causes India to think that Pakistan attacked them, uh, which sets off another conflict. And Israel joins India in the attack on Pakistan. It's like a quick reference, I think, in the book, but it shows you how fast these things can can escalate. And I don't think anyone had perfect information 
about any of this. Um, the movie does answer a lot of questions for a TV movie on HBO Pictures in 1990. Uh, it's really Hi. fascinating. What about some non-nuclear things? Uh, we usually do what we call here our parking lot movie discussion, where we talk about some of the non-nuclear things, the kind of stuff that me and my friends would talk about in the parking lot after going to a movie theater. The only one big question I have for here is, uh, for you is, you know, what cabinet position, other than, say, the Department of Defense secretary, would you feel most comfortable taking over the line of succession? Not depending on the individual person, but just, you know, like the, the, the position itself. Uh, for me, f- for example, uh, I would go with uh, housing and urban development because that person would have a strong incentive not to have a nuclear war destroy all of the homes and buildings that they just built. <laughs> I don't know about you. Who would you rather have in control here? I, I think that the Secretary of State would uh, play an important pacifying role. I, I think in when we are talking about crises, the most important probably trait is to remain level-headed and bring and inject diplomacy in the, in the discourse and in decision-making. And I think the Secretary of State would be best equipped uh, to do so. Oh, that makes sense. How well do you think that the uh, love story works in this movie? I know it's not really a storyline in the book, but I thought it was an interesting wrinkle to kind of humanize everyone. But it was, I, I don't know, I i think it, I'm, I, it's probably better for a movie than for a book, but it didn't particularly work really well for me, although the actors are pretty good. Yeah, I also didn't think that they, foc- you're right, like they didn't focus a lot of attention uh, on that uh, romantic angle, but uh, it seems that... Uh, when uh, he uh, gives her the cyanide uh, pill and uh, that had a romantic uh, spin to it because like he eventually begs her not to uh, leave him at that point. Yeah, it's it shows you even more complicated about how these crews who are not supposed to be, you know, they're not supposed to be fraternizing with each other and for these kinds of reasons, but it shows you that you can have a perfect system in place for command and control and how to do everything, you know, by the book, but people are still people and Sometimes you try to uh, train that out of them, but it's hard still to to get all of it out, I guess. She does bring up the personal liability of this thing often, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very fascinating. So for this movie, we usually like to, to do a rating system of all the stuff that we talk about. Uh, I usually like to do it on a scale of one to five. So unlike Death Con uh, status, one is the movie that you would never recommend to anybody. And five is like a terrific movie you'd recommend to your family to watch during the holidays. But I like to tailor the system based off of the movie that we're we're talking about here. Um, so I've I've uh, calculated the numbers. I've talked to you know the computer and it's made a decision. By Don's really light. Let's rate on a scale of one out of five possible presidents of the United States. People who are arguing that they are the president. They're the ones that are left, and you need to listen to them because I thought if you only have one POTUS in play, you have to basically you know worry about whether or not that one's going to go rogue and do the launch order but if you have five POTUS candidates all vying for the position you can at least hopefully keep the nuclear football closed for a long period of time here what would you give this movie what's your answer to <laughs> i would give it 3.5 uh, i think it's pretty good for a tv movie particularly one from 1990 there's a solid attention to the new stuff which i think is always really fun with me even when they get stuff wrong it's it's relatively minor I think it shows the chaos of nuclear war fighting really well and all the things we mentioned about how complicated it is to understand what's happening and you make an order and it turns out that your order was misunderstood by the other side and all kinds of stuff and how hard it is to make a very fast decision. I think the plot gets a little jumbled when we are in any sort of like scene that's not the James Earl Jones stuff, which I think is really good. But this really the plot between the inferior secretary and Colonel Fargo, I think it gets a little weird here and there. But I, overall, I think it's 
it's pretty good. The non-nuke stuff that I didn't like about the movie was the editing. Too often you'd be in this really intense scene of like strategic air command talking about what they're going to do next. And then they would cut really fast to a scene like in a shower where some of the crew members are like jostling and, and uh, hitting each other with towels and stuff. And then immediately you go back to the president deciding some sort of war conflict thing. It just took me out of it. It was like really hard to kind of follow. So that's why it gets a 3.5. I'd recommend it to people. It's a must see for anyone in the nuclear community, uh, but it's not something I would show to like, I wouldn't pop it on the, the DVD during Thanksgiving. Right. I actually, you're right. Uh, but I, I think I would rank it a little a bit higher. I would give it a 4.25. Ooh. I uh, yes, um, because I I think it does an in, important task of really showcasing some of the aspects that a lot of other movies don't cover in terms of the actual nuclear war fighting and combat, and I think that is uh, highly difficult to also capture on screen because. I feel uh, that uh, there is a lot of technicalities that one has to grapple with. A lot of the other movies uh, talks about the concepts or or is a, actually a prelude to the actual nuclear fighting mm-hmm. slash combat. So I think uh, I, I rank it highly because... Um, uh, they are able to successfully do a lot of uh, that. I would have given it a 4.5, uh, but I give it only 4.25 because in the end, I, the ending could have been a little more rounded. I, mm. I thought it was abrupt. It doesn't really uh, showcase how the a real a president comes into the forefront and recalls the submarine. I think uh, recalling the submarine um, and the SSBN force is an arduous task in real life because also we understand the challenges of communication and all sorts of NC3 challenges uh, yeah. really uh, plays out. But it just had a more uh, like abrupt ending and we were expected to assume that all is fine and it is by dawn's early uh, light there's a new era but it would have been interesting to see actually how the president was able to um, defuse uh, the crisis and if they would have done that I would have given it 4.5 but I really enjoyed the movie I think it's an extremely important one for anyone trying to uh, better understand how nuclear policy making uh, is made and uh, can draw a lot of reference and understand uh, some of these technical issues, uh, how it plays out in the present day context. Yeah, and I'm really glad you uh, wanted to talk about this movie for all of those very unique takes that the movie has on on this uh, particular topic. I would have loved just a post-credit scene where Martin Lando was on the phone with the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom that says... so where were you guys um in a similar call with france i think that would have been kind of fun we covered by dawn's early light but if people have some other things they may want to learn about the topics that were covered in our podcast or something a little bit similar let's recommend a few things maybe you have something i've got a a few things here for people to check out one of which is your article directing doomsday lessons learned from nuclear weapons and film i'll be sure to link that in our show notes Thank you. No, it's a, it was a great read. I recommend the books. I think I've done it previously on the podcast, but they're very relevant for this. Uh, the book called The Dead Hand and another one called Doomsday Machine. Um, both of them are part- great descriptions of the, the perimeter system and kind of the equivalent stuff that was discussed in the United States. I recommend a movie called Countdown to Looking Glass. It's a 1984 movie, so several years before this one, but it really heavily features a, the looking glass as the the system, the mobile command system, and it's similar to some other movies where part of it is done like TV news 
coverage of it, and it's largely in real time. And finally, I'd recommend the movie Failsafe. We've covered it previously on the podcast, but particularly for the ending, which I'm not going to spoil here, the decisions that the president has to make about how they can convince the Russians that, you know, hey, there's going to be a nuclear attack on your side. How do we convince you that we're done? And how do we give you something, give you a pound of flesh so you don't hit us again? It's a fascinating little ending here. Um, Do you have anything you'd like to recommend, Sylvia? Yeah, I'm probably super biased, but I would ask our our listeners to listen to this uh, super critical uh, podcast and uh, sign up uh, to your amazing uh, podcast. I do really uh, learn a lot uh, listening uh, to you and your esteemed uh, guests over here. And um, the second one uh, is a book that I'm currently reading and uh, really enjoying. And I think... Uh, uh, it, it's called The uh, Kill Chain uh, by uh, Kristen Bross. And it's, it's essentially about like uh, US and China of uh, the uh, competition and the military competition between uh, the two countries. And it really um, makes a good case about how uh, some of the asymmetric technologies and capabilities that, that uh, China is building is not really uh, aimed at going toe-to-toe uh, with the U.S. military capabilities, but but the way they are building uh, their uh, asymmetric forces can really greatly under- undermine both United States' conventional and strategic arsenal. So I, I, I think that is an extremely good read, which breaks away a little bit from the bipolar U.S.-Russia kind of context, but also look at the tripartite nuclear rivalry and competition amongst the the United States, China and Russia. And it's really scary because now uh, both China and uh, Russia are deepening their military cooperation. Uh, That's a book I I would recommend. That's a great recommendation. I want to also recommend to people how they can uh, reach out to you after this podcast is done, because I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking all about this film. But how can people reach you, either, whether it's on, on Twitter or, I, I know, studio, you're doing some great work as well with WCAPS, uh, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Initiative to bring a lot more diversity into our field. Uh, you're doing some terrific work with that. So where can people see some of this uh, awesome stuff that you're doing? I am available on Twitter <laughs> with the handle uh, at the rate Amushra which is my last name, M-I-S-H-R-A and Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A. Yes, uh, I I think just a plain Google uh, search would uh, throw up uh, some of my uh, recent articles. And uh, the one that I would uh, like to draw one's attention uh, to is, it's essentially uh, talking about how the integration of emerging uh, tech and nuclear weapons is uh, producing the different strains and changing our present nuclear uh, landscape as we know. And that's very relevant to the, the movie we covered. And I'm sure I'll have you back on the podcast at some point in the future because these things uh, always pop up and it's fun to have someone that knows what they're doing and about these particular very highly complicated topics. And I'd uh, love to have you back on in the future. So thanks again so much for this. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, uh, you want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke-wise or uh, maybe we should have been so hard on James Earl Jones and uh, and everybody there. There's a couple ways you can contact the show. I'm on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I've got a website, supercriticalpodcast.com. And I also check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Sylvia Michelle. And remember... If it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.